Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to jump into a little bit of a heavy topic philosophically, a topic that often sends people uh, running, uh, mainly because the writers in this area, uh, particularly the one we're going to talk about today, are often extremely difficult to read and often extremely misunderstood. Uh, today I want to delve into um, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how he defines existentialism, um, and I want to also cover another of his areas that he discusses, the look of the other and how this kind of plays into his ideas of existentialism, but how it also kind of plays into uh, ideas of a psychological model. Now, just a little bit of a brief background on existentialism. Uh, the founders of existentialism are basically considered to be uh, Dostoevsky, who is a literary writer, but because of the things he said in his stories and how he put them together, he's considered one of the founders. Uh, also, Soren Kierkegaard um, and Friedrich Nietzsche. These are these are considered to be the um, ones from the 1800s who are sort of the founding fathers of existentialism. Uh, and existentialism kind of gets lumped into uh, what has later often been called the continental philosophers, uh, as opposed to the analytic. I think I mentioned before the continental, the analytic, and the pragmatist. The pragmatists are American philosophers like Dewey and Pierce and uh, people like that. The uh, analytic philosophers are people like Bertrand Russell, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, they're people who focused on a lot on land, on logic, uh, the analy analytical. Uh, the analytical philosophers also tended to be mostly um, British and American, which is why they're usually called the analytical, and the other are called the continental. Continental philosophers tend to be more philosophers who are of the German and French traditions, uh, and their goals have been different. The way they approached philosophy, philosophy has been very different. So Sartre kind of comes out of this background of Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard is somewhat famous for his uh, his work Fear and Trembling, where he kind of comes to the conclusion that uh, modern people have tried to make religion too rational. Uh, they've tried to make it uh, too uh, too easily explained by logic. And one of the things that Kierkegaard says is, you to be a, a a Christian, to be a believer, you have to embrace it because it's not logical. You sort of have to choose the fact that this is completely illogical and, and embrace it for that reason. Uh, one of the examples that he gives, Kierkegaard, is the example of Abraham being offer, asked to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, <clears throat> the logical way of looking at that story would be to say, well, Abraham had confidence that God would be good and he wouldn't have to sacrifice his son. The way that Kierkegaard sort of goes into this idea is that, no, you have to embrace the idea that it's illogical and that two different things were occurring uh, in the mind of Abraham at the same time. Uh, one, that he was going to have to kill his son, and two, that somehow he would uh, not have to kill his son. So he sort of pushes towards um, 
the idea that you have to embrace the illogical. You can't explain these things with logic. Um, <clears throat> now, when you get into the 20th century, a lot of the existentialists, their focus shifts more to being. And Heidegger is really the first big ones of the existentialists. Uh, his, no his novel, I'm sorry, his major work is Being in Time, uh, where he discusses being. And Sartre comes along after uh, Heidegger, but they're contemporaries. Uh, Sartre's work, his major work is called Being in Nothingness. <clears throat> so the existentialists, uh, according to Sartre, uh, this is how he sort of defines them in his, in his speech that he gives, existentialism is a humanism. You can buy the speech in text form. Um, it's, it's pretty widely available. Uh, the idea that he has about existentialism is one of the main focal points of existentialism, whether they are Christian or uh, atheist existentialists, and Sartre falls into the second category. He's clearly an atheist existentialist and says that he is, as is Heidegger. <clears throat> but the point that they focus on from the beginning or at the beginning is the fact that they have a different approach to existence and essence, this, this topic um, that is usually gone the other way. Uh, the, most of the religious viewings of essence, uh, if you look at people like Kant and other philosophers, is that, especially in the religious philosophies, uh, you know, God has this idea of what man is and what humanity is. And so that is the essence of man and humanity. And the actual human beings that come about uh, that's the existence. So that's kind of the idea that the essence or the idea exists first, and then there's the existence. Well, Sartre and the other uh, existentialists kind of turn that around, and they say, no, existence is prior to essence. There is no <clears throat> preset essence of humans. Um, we sort of choose what our essence becomes. And this Choosing is very important to Sartre because one of the things that Sartre is working towards is the idea of freedom. Uh, if you can't choose your existence, then you don't have any freedom. And Sartre believes that we are uh, condemned to be free in his terms. You have no choice but to be free. You know, because we decide uh, what kinds of things we're going to accept, what kinds of things we uh, classify how we classify things, you know, what we classify as something that is human as opposed to something that is not human, uh, behaviors that humans should have, uh, should not have. All of this has to start with a being making this decision. So the existence precedes the essence. There's a living human being and then they sort of decide what their essence is going to be. Whether they're going to be a good person, a bad person, uh, whether they're going to be spiritual, non-spiritual, uh, whether they're going to follow the customs of the society they're born into or completely reject those. So the individual has to be there before they can decide um, what their essence is. And Sartre does this uh, not in a way that sort of sort of would absolve the individual and say, well, you're free to do what you want. There are no consequences. You know, this is one of the <clears throat> arguments made against 
existentialism is that if there's no God and you're free to do whatever you want, um, then there's no consequences to any of your behaviors. But Sartre doesn't believe this because he believes that while there may not be a divine uh, individual standing above all of this passing judgment, everything you decide is sort of a decision you're making for all of humanity. Uh, if you decide that stealing is a good thing, then you've decided that all of humanity should steal, if, that, if that's what you see as the right thing. Or if you decide that you shouldn't steal, you've decided this for all of humanity. And Sartre's um, reason for saying this is not without consequence is because he says, as humans, we do have an anguish over this. Because we have no way of knowing, since there's no uh, divine voice that can arbitrate, there's no exact human nature that can arbitrate what's right and what's wrong, there's a certain amount of anguish that comes along with making every decision you make. You know, have I made the right decision? Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Uh, one of the things that Sartre addresses is some people will say, well, just because I do it, everybody else won't do it, so it's not a big deal. But Sartre kind of sees these people as being in denial. He actually calls things like this uh, bad faith, sort of the idea that <clears throat> you can escape these things, these things don't bother you. Because they do bother you. Um, it does erode the back of someone's mind. Are they doing the right thing? Are they making the right decision, the wrong decision? And without some uh, rule book or referee to say, yes, this is right, no, this is wrong, they're left in a state of perpetual doubt about their choice. They're left in a state of kind of anxiety. So this freedom is not a necessarily a joyful freedom. It's a freedom that is filled with responsibility. This is one of the things that in existential ethics a lot of people don't understand is that they think this means, oh, the person just wants to be free without any responsibilities, without any um, consequences whatsoever. And the existentialist response to that is, no, there's always consequences. There's always this self-doubt, this questioning that kind of keeps you in a state of anxiety. Uh, every decision you make, you have to wonder, was this the right decision? Was this the wrong decision? And you have the weight of, I've made this decision for the whole world, weighing down on your shoulders, whether you admit to it or not. So it's sort of the uh, human is the subject, uh, the subjective person but they also have subjectivity that has consequences as it goes out into the real world. <clears throat> now, this kind of becomes clearer if you know more about Sartre's idea of the look of the other. Uh, when you have a person looking out at the world, everything to that person is an object. Everything, every person, every creature is an object. Um, and people would be like gods, except for the fact that the individual is not the only one doing this. So when I go into a room and there are people in the room, at the start, these people are objects. But as soon as they look at me, now 
they've turned me into an object. So there's this constant fight back and forth with people wanting to be subjective and, you know, being the one that's subjective and classifying things as they are while fighting against the fact that other people are doing the same thing to them. Uh, so there's always this interplay. Uh, if you've ever, an easy example of this, if you've ever um, had someone that disliked you, uh, disliked you a lot, and you start thinking about, well, why does this person dislike me? I'm very likable, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm this, I'm that, and yet this person hates my guts. Um, part of that is they don't see all of you. They see the parts of you that you might not see about yourself. Uh, part of it may be they're projecting uh, their downsides on you to make themselves feel better. So we're not in control when we go out into the world of how we're perceived. You know, no matter how much you speak, no matter how much you write, the rest of the world only knows a tiny fraction of you. And they're going to make that judgment based on that tiny fraction, whether you're a good person or a bad person. You know, you get lumped into being, you're a bad person, and you start thinking, well, but I do this, and I do this, and I don't do this, and I have all of these good qualities, but they don't know those parts of you. They don't know those qualities because you're strictly an object. Um, and so you're with this interplay. And while they've objectified you, you're also objectifying them. And they're sort of fighting against this concept you have of them and saying, well, wait, this is not really who I am. You're simplifying it. You're turning me into an evil person. I'm not an evil person. <clears throat> and it's kind of... Uh, when you when you look at this kind of conflict of subject and object and and the back and forth, uh, you kind of understand a little bit more about how this is not just a philosophy about the individual and I do what I want and I make up my own rules because the individual runs into the world of the other and the world of many others and so these worlds are interacting um, and these worlds are having consequences on each other. Now the part of the problem that Sartre points out of why you can't just claim an identity and be that is that we are not that kind of being. Um, there's two types of being. There's the being of things and then there's the being of subjective entities, entities that are aware of their own being uh, and able to make choices about their own being. Uh, and this is also the difference between something where the existence comes first and something where the essence comes first. If I look at a table, the table in this room, for example, um, before this table was a, a, an object, before it had being, it was an essence. It was an idea in some designer's mind. They had the idea of what it should look like, how it should function, um, so the essence came first, and then when it goes to the hands of the people who actually build it, again, they build it certain ways with certain materials, and they make the decision about what the object is, what it's made of. Um, and then the object gets classified by people as what it is. This is classified as a table. The table cannot on its own say... I'd rather be a refrigerator, or I'd rather be a desk, or I'd rather be a chair. All of those identities are completely imposed from the outside. Now, 
humans, even when you try to take a identity, me for example, I'm a writer and teacher. But that's not all of my identity. I can't be a writer and a teacher the same way the desk is a desk. Um, because my identity, who I am, is much larger than that. And it's much more fluid. A desk is always a desk until somebody breaks it down or turns it into something else. Um, my identity and everyone else's identity is constantly shifting. Even if I think I'm a writer, um, there's lots of times when I'm not writing. And there's lots of times when I'm not teaching. I'm eating. I'm drinking something. I'm riding a bus. I'm riding a bike. I'm walking. I'm driving. I'm shopping. I'm a, you know, a, a child, a, a cousin, a friend, an enemy. I have all of these different identities. I'm, a, I'm an employee and, and so forth. So no one of these things can I claim and say, okay, this is my identity entirely. I am this and nothing else. Because I have to, as a human and part of society, and even if I weren't part of society, I would still have to be many different things in order to just survive. <clears throat> and so this also creates uh, part of our struggle with that look of the other. Uh, while I want to be seen as a writer and teacher... Uh, somebody who knows me in a different context is going to say, oh, no, you're an employee of this or that. Or, no, you're the son of this person or that person. Oh, no, you're a citizen of this country. Oh, no, you're a, you know, a member of this group. So all of these things um, are beyond our control. Um, as much as we'd like to control the way the rest of the world sees us and say, I'm the subject, I make the rules on how people see me, that's not the way it actually works. And in his uh, book, No Exit, Sartre actually uses the line, hell is other people. And this line is basically a line that says, you know, no matter how hard you try to say, I'm going to be the person I know I am and everybody's going to accept me as the person that I know that I am, you lose all of that ability to do that the moment other people are involved because other people will never see you precisely the way you see yourself. And so you will constantly be struggling against this is the identity that's being imposed upon me, but this isn't who I am. This other identity should be what they're seeing me as. Okay, I'm going to break off for there. Uh, I am going to go much more into depth in other episodes next season on a lot of these philosophers. We're going to slow down uh, and cover these more point by point. Um, but again, this first season of these podcasts, I just want to kind of start introducing some of these ideas. Uh, that way, when we do go into the episodes where we get into more depth on them, you at least have a little bit of footing. You at least have a little bit of, okay, we're starting at this point and now we're going to expand outward from here. Okay, I hope all of you are staying safe. I hope all of you are doing well and I will talk to you again soon.